Welcome to my little studio closet here in Durban, South Africa. This is the place where we ask the question, what does spirituality look like even when we have doubts and questions and uncertainty? Even when we disagree with the religious party line? Or even when we're not sure about this whole God thing at all? My name is Skip Collins. I am the host, presenter, and producer of this podcast. Yep, it's just me in my closet with all my own questions and uncertainty. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but rather uncertain. I'm not sure there is much I enjoy more than sitting around a dinner table or around a good cup of coffee and talking about things that really matter. Whether it's issues like justice, or LGBTQ, or politics, or racism, or theological matters about who God is, or biblical interpretation, or a host of other things. I just love those times. And especially since I've started this podcast a year ago, I've had more and more of those conversations, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in a group. But what I've come to realize, at least in my circles, is that Everything seems to go back to how you read, understand, and interpret the Bible. And maybe even before that, do you even trust that the Bible is true? A couple of years ago, I heard Andy Stanley talking about this. He said that 20 years ago, pretty much everybody trusted the Bible to be true. In fact, for many of us, we believed the Bible to be true and trustworthy even before we actually read it. I don't think that's true anymore. I think people come to the Bible with all kinds of skepticism and doubt. And to answer a question with, the Bible says, means absolutely nothing to many people. The response is just like, well, so? It's like saying to a Bible-believing Christian, that the Quran says. It just doesn't carry any weight. Now, if you're a literalist when it comes to the Bible, then you just find a verse that talks about the particular subject, and that gets injected into the conversation. If another person in the conversation feels like the Bible really can't be trusted, then you're almost talking two completely different languages. But you have to just take a step back and talk about how you see the Bible, how you interpret the Bible, and how you trust the Bible. Back in season one, I did a podcast called, Is the Bible Inerrant? If you haven't heard it, you may want to go back and listen. I think it was the eighth podcast or something. And then from time to time in other podcasts, I've touched on other aspects of the Bible, but I think it's worth diving into a little more deeply um, for the next two or maybe three podcasts because it's so crucial to so many conversations. So the question I want to put out there is, can the Bible be trusted? Before I get started, though, let me quickly remind you about Patreon. Patreon is a place where you can help support things that you deem worthy. And of course, there are some costs to producing a podcast like this. And while it's not exorbitant, 
now that I'm retired, I am definitely counting my pennies. So if you could help support this podcast with as little as a dollar a month, it would help. Just go to patreon.com. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Skip Collins. I'll put a link below as well, but thanks for hearing me out on that. Most of our evangelical churches have some kind of statement of faith. And included in that statement is something like, the Bible is the final authority for all matters of life and faith. Now, that's great if the premise that I'm working from is that the Bible can be trusted, because then I can accept it as authoritative in my life. But if I'm not sure I can trust it, then I'm not sure I can accept its authority. My guess is there are many people, especially young people, that sit in our churches week after week with this underlying feeling that the Bible can't actually be trusted, or at least with a lot of uncertainty about certain parts of the Bible. But to even voice the question is risky. And those that have been willing to ask the question in our churches are usually given a series of Bible verses, which isn't actually very helpful. In conversations I've had recently, one of the things that comes up when we're questioning the trustworthiness of the Bible is the canonization of the Bible. Who picked the books that are used in our Bible and why? And why aren't other books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Epistle of Barnabas, why aren't they included? And who decided it's these books and no others? The word we use, canon, means an authoritative collection of writings. Literally, the word means to measure or a measuring stick. So, so what makes this so authoritative? And who decided that the canon is actually closed? I mean, what happens if suddenly they discover another letter to the church in Corinth that Paul seems to make mention of? Can that be added? Or is it all closed now? Or what if some archaeology discovery found that one of the books in the Bible isn't legit? Can it be taken out? As most of you know, the Bible we Protestants use is made up of 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Today, I want to talk primarily about the New Testament and how it came into being. And the next time, we'll talk about a bit about the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever saw the movie or read the book, The Da Vinci Code. It was extremely controversial in Christian circles when it came out. The evangelical church pretty much discouraged any of its members from seeing the film. Honest dialogue around tough issues really wasn't a thing back then. A few famous Christian apologists saw it, and they would tell you everything you needed to know about the movie and everything that was wrong with the theology in the movie. There were even numerous Christian books that were written on that specific subject. And so being the good Christian that I was, I never watched the movie, which is kind of surprising because usually when somebody tells me I can't do something, I run out and do it. So last year, I was on a flight to the United States, and The Da Vinci Code was playing, so I watched it. 
I was disappointed that it didn't actually live up to its heresy hype, but I really enjoyed the film. I was thinking that if this had been released in 2019 instead of 2000, it probably would have been a non-issue in most Christian circles. Anyway, the film gives one the idea that a group of men met secretly under the leadership of Constantine, and what went into the Bible was decided by them mainly for political purposes. As fascinating as the film is, that is not actually how it went down at all. In fact, contrary to some teaching, the canon of Scripture was not decided by any council or group. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But if you go back to the period of time, just after the disciples, so we're talking like second to the fourth century, there was no canon of Scripture. There was no closed group of books from which the church found authority for faith and life. There were writings, however, that were used regularly in the churches. When you read of the earliest theologians, the men we call the church fathers, these writings were referred to as the scriptures. Some of those writings were the letters of Paul or one of the four gospels that we have now, but they also referred to other writings as scripture, such as the shepherd of Hermas or the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. The idea that 27 books of the New Testament that we have now are what the church has always believed are Scripture is just not true. The church fathers used to speak of this thing called the rule of faith. And this was critically important in the early church in the 3rd, 2nd, 4th centuries. The rule of faith was what the church believed about God, about Jesus, and about life. Many of the early church creeds came out of this rule of faith, or we can say the creeds were the expression of the rule of faith. Or maybe I can say it this way, the rule of faith were the non-negotiables of Christianity. They were broad statements about the Trinity and about redemption. And yes, they could be supported by the scriptures or the writings of the early church, but the rule of faith was not the scriptures themselves. The rule of faith was what they discerned from the scriptures. It was only in the fourth century that theologians decided they should formalize a list or a canon of scripture. So theologians started to produce lists of the books they thought should be included. Some theologians had lists that looked exactly like our New Testament today, but some lists looked very different with some books omitted and others added. If you listen to modern evangelical speakers speak of this process— they will tell you that there were certain criteria that was used to decide if a particular book was worthy to be in the canon or not. That criteria usually included that the book was written by one of the apostles or by someone directly connected to the apostles. And there was a few other criteria, but but even then it doesn't work so well because 
because back then nobody knew who wrote the book of Hebrews and somehow it got in. But but anyway, modern people make it sound like they all got together. They decided on the criteria before they put their first list together. But that's not true at all. They each worked out their own criteria. And while the criteria may be similar in some cases, there really was no agreed upon set of criteria. There were 16 books that everybody pretty much agreed on. The four Gospels that we have now, Acts, 1 John, 1 Peter, and nine of Paul's letters. But there were 11 other books that were highly debated for a long time. And when I say a long time, we're talking like 100 years. Those were James, 2 Peter, Jude, 2 and 3 John, and four of Paul's letters because they were not sure Paul actually wrote them. And then, of course, the book of Revelation was highly contested. In fact, Revelation was one of the most highly debated books, probably because they couldn't make heads or tails of it either, but mostly because plenty of theologians at the time didn't believe that John actually wrote it. So let me throw a few things, two things anyway, that I find fascinating when it comes to these disputed books. There are certain verses that get quoted regularly when speaking of the trustworthiness of the Bible. One of them is found in 2 Timothy when it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, or some versions say all Scripture is inspired by God. And we get the idea that the canon is closed for all time from the book of Revelation when it says in chapter 2 that nothing, or chapter 22 rather, that nothing can be added or subtracted from this book. Both of those great proof text verses are found in highly contested books of the New Testament. I don't really have a point to make all that other than I find it incredibly interesting. But then there are seven other books that some had on their list that none of which made the final cut at the end of the day. The point is that these things were debated for a very long time, and not everybody agreed. There were different councils in the late 4th and 5th centuries that declared their particular list of books to be the canon, but even then they didn't agree. In fact, to this day, there is still no one canon for the entire Christian church. Among other things, the Eastern Orthodox Church does not include the book of Revelation. I really like that myself. While we Protestants would declare that these 27 books of the New Testament are fully inspired by God and the final matters for faith and for life, but there are Christian traditions that would disagree with that. Now, that might burst your bubble a bit. It certainly did mine when I discovered it. But you can do the research for yourself. Go check it out. Now, let me be clear. The bulk of it we agree on, and there is no dispute. However, actually, there is no closed canon of Scripture in the large Christian church. We are still, in some ways, debating it. 
Now, that's the history behind all of this. But the question we're trying to answer is, can I trust the Bible in all matters of life and faith? And it sounds like I just made this massive argument as to why the Bible can't be trusted. But in my mind, it is exactly why I can trust Scripture. Not in some kind of literalistic reading that claims inerrancy or that says it's either 100% right or you got to throw it all out, but in reading it in a way that God breathes life into me. First of all, I love that God trusted humans with a message. On one level, that doesn't make any sense at all because there is a very high probability that humans are going to mess it all up. As I'm thinking about it, though, I, I was just thinking of something that I haven't thought about in many years, but suddenly it like makes sense to me, so let me see if it does for you too. When my, when my oldest son was in first grade, this was like before we came to South Africa, so we're, we're talking 30 years ago. He had a very young, progressive-thinking teacher. This teacher put the children's desks in groups facing each other. So there were probably like four or six kids in each group. And these groups were very strategically put together so that the kids that caught on to things quickly could help teach the kids that didn't. I remember speaking to him at a teacher's parents' conference, and he told me that the kids can actually explain things better to each other than he could as the teacher. I thought that was brilliant. I've never forgotten it. Now, I don't know why God trusted humans with the message, but I love the fact that he did. I love that getting the message perfect didn't seem to be God's first priority. I love that God seems to be okay with messy. Certainly, this process was messy, and it still is messy. But while God seems to be quite okay with messy, we Christians are not nearly as comfortable with it. We try to sterilize and sanitize everything. We seem to be afraid of doubt and uncertainty. And when it comes to this idea of canonization, I have read a number of evangelical pastors and theologians who answer the question of who decided the canon of Scripture with the answer, God did. I think they're afraid the long answer is too messy and too uncertain, and they don't trust people to actually handle it. But the fact that God seems to be okay with messy gives me great hope. It's not about the perfect Bible verse or the perfect translation of said verse. It's about me being willing to let God into the messiness of my life. It's about letting God speak to me through the messiness and imperfection of Scripture. And that gives me incredible hope. For four or five hundred years, the church flourished and thrived without a closed canon. 
It doesn't seem that figuring that out was even high priority in the first 400 years. If this was today, we would call a three-day conference and we would just settle it. We would finish the debate and make the call. I realize that everything moves quicker in our world than it did in the 3rd and 4th centuries. But the fact that they were willing to wrestle and to debate and not come to some kind of a conclusion for like a hundred years is mind-blowing to me. For me, that lends huge credibility to this collection of books and letters. It wasn't just a group of men in, in a secret room making decisions based on political outcomes. It was wrestled with and debated over for hundreds of years. And in my opinion, it gives me the freedom to continue the discussion and the debate, to continue to wrestle with the scriptures. I think it's important to remember that the lack of a closed canon didn't mean that they didn't take the scriptures seriously or that they didn't see them as authoritative. In the midst of the debate and the messiness, they took them very seriously. We don't have to throw the Bible out completely while we debate whether Revelation should be there or whether the picture of Jesus riding into town on a big white horse with a giant sword in his hand like Gandalf in Return of the King is literal or not. But we can still be inspired and challenged and convicted as we read these ancient texts. Now, one thing before I wrap this up that I just can't seem to get away from. So as I said earlier, there was this rule of faith that was kind of the guardian of the faith in the early church. And from that rule of faith, an expression comes in the, in the creed that the church would use in their worship services. When you go back and you read the early creeds that some churches still use as a part of worship today, there is no mention of the centrality of Scripture in the faith. They speak of God as Creator, as Jesus as Redeemer. They speak of the Holy Spirit. They speak of the church. But they don't even mention Scripture. But today, if you go on the website of almost any evangelical church and look at their statement of faith or their, their creed, if you will, you will see a statement about the centrality of Scripture. In fact, I would be willing to put money on it that most statements of faith, Scripture is the first thing they talk about. Before God as creator of all things? Really? Before Jesus? Before redemption? Before the Holy Spirit? Now understand, that is a Reformation thing. The Reformation put the Bible on a pedestal above everything else. To the point where today, I would suggest we live in an age of bibliolatry. We worship the book, not the God of the book. We have made an idol out of the book. And many of us have been told that if we don't go along with that, we're not really Christians. Well, I think there's another way. I think there's a better way.
I think we need to approach Scripture with great humility as we debate and wrestle with its content. Not in a debate of who's right and who's wrong. Not a debate to prove my point or to be the smartest guy in the room, but a debate to discern what God might be saying to us now in our world, in our context. See, this is not, at the heart of it all, an intellectual debate. It never has been. This is a call to discern what God might be saying to us. What God might be saying in 2020 about matters of life and faith that affect us. I hope that in some way that is helpful to you. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening all the way to the end. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins, if you can help. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so you can connect with me there or go to my website, skipcollins.com. Until next time, shalom.